We're going to continue to worship as we unpack and open up God's Word. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We will be in chapter 2 this morning, and Lord willing, we will wrap up chapter 2. I wanted to start by uh, sort of setting the stage a little bit for what we're going to be talking about. You might remember this far back. It seems like it's been a really long time, but way back when, when movies were actually being made. I don't know if you can remember that far back. When movies were actually being made, they would run movie previews on TV. This movie preview is sort of supposed to be sort of a hook that would get your attention. It's supposed to be a preview of coming attractions. And they're so formulaic, they're, they're so predictable because they work. They all involve the same at some point in the, in the movie preview, in a world. And then they show you the chase scene, the fight scene, and the love scene. Every movie preview is the same. In a world where this happens, here's a fight scene, here's a chase scene, here's a love scene. So that you, in some microcosmic way, sort of feel fulfilled. Like that's going to make you feel something, anything, which is better than the nothing that you typically feel. At least that's how we're sort of treated by Hollywood and media. Well, those previews are supposed to be a preview of a coming attraction in the very same way. We've already talked about this in Ephesians chapter 1. The church, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a preview of a coming attraction. Now, everybody in the world wants for everybody to basically get along. You can't hear a song or a TV commercial these days about someone saying, hey, let's all just meet in the middle. I mean, I was astonished that this past Super Bowl, virtually every commercial involved this great grand call for unity. Let's just all get along. Let's just all finally stop fighting. Let's all meet in the middle. The question and the challenge becomes, what middle? Whose middle? What does this one look like? Generally speaking, it is somebody's call to unity on their terms which is always dangerous, and it always creates these great and terrible divides. Everybody wants us to be one, but on whose terms exactly? We say it as often as possible. This is why the church is so important. We believe that the local church is the hope of the world, and that's because in the church, we get to preview the coming attraction, which is the coming kingdom of God literally manifest fully on earth. So it brings us to our big idea, what we're going to unpack in this passage this morning. It goes like this. We are one in the sun. I like it because it's true and because it rhymes and because it's the perfect follow-on for everything we've discussed thus far in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We are one in the sun. Now, despite all that's going on outside with weather and calamity and this, that, and the other, we're still going to continue to walk through God's Word in our Ephesians sermon series. We're still in the first half, the first section of the book of Ephesians, which is all about our position in Christ. The last half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is about our practice on earth. So we've got our position in Christ, and then we'll talk about our practice on earth. But this is the passage that most I guess, approximates and approaches the, the marrying together of our position in Christ and our practice on earth. It's this preview passage that says, this is the belief that ought to bring along your behavior. This is the attitude that ought to influence your action. This is the doctrine that ought to determine your doing. And I can alliterate all day. But this is such a significant core text. I don't want us to miss it. Now, I emailed our campus 
earlier this morning and I asked, really begged and pleaded with you to please read the passage in advance and to pray for this morning, to pray for me as I preach this passage because I can just about predict with a high degree of certainty that I'm going to upset just about 124% of the congregation. I don't mean to. I just want to walk through the passage and allow the Lord to speak to us through it. So Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 22, and then we'll unpack this and see if we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This also is God's Word. Now, I want to walk through this passage relatively efficiently, hopefully, and then we'll see how we can apply this to our lives with a thousand different potential implications and applications. I'm just going to give us three. But for now, let's just walk back through this text. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, therefore. And it's not just therefore, it's the strongest possible therefore. It is to say, in light of everything that he's just written in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, in light of, in view of that, therefore, this is the absolute required eventuality. Because of all that, remember, you were dead in your sin and trespass, a child of wrath, but God, verse 4, he made you alive, he raised you up, he seated you and me with Christ in the heavenlies, and we have been the recipients of his salvation by grace. We are the ones in the process of having already been saved. And not only that, we are his poema, his workmanship, his poetry in motion. Therefore, therefore, there has to be something that comes out of all of that glory of the gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Verse 11 says, therefore, after all of that, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. There was this divide where Jewish people all over the known world at the time looked down on and disparaged Gentiles because of a physical symbol. And Paul says, hey, listen, you, you got to remember, at one time you were separate. You were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised. And then he says parenthetically, and by the way, that circumcision, that's done with human hands, to which we go, 
Well, <laughs> yeah. How else would you? Don't ask. I don't want to know. Blah. Of course it is. But Paul's doing a thing. See, the Hebrews were famous for saying that other gods, other idols, were false gods made by human hands. That's what Moses calls all other gods. He refers to them as gergashim, sheep do, because they're false. They're made by human hands. And so Paul very cleverly, very subtly says, that circumcision, it's a false god. It's not really a thing. It's made by human hands. It's a symbol. Circumcision has always been about the condition of the heart, Deuteronomy uh, 10 and Deuteronomy 30. It's always been a heart condition. Circumcise your hearts. Be set apart in your heart, soul, and mind, and ultimately your body. But if it's just mindless and mechanical, stop it. It means nothing. And so Paul says right off the bat, there is this huge, great, big divide. Now, it's hard for us to understand just how disparate and distant Jews and Gentiles would have been. It's a huge issue. We kind of go, well, yeah, Jew and Gentile, they, you know, they kind of get along and it's, you know, then Jesus. And it, no, no, no. It was a massive, massive divide between Gentile and Jew. As far back as Genesis 12, when the nation of Israel begins through the progeny of Father Abraham. Now, what's interesting is Father Abraham is told, through your seed, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations. They will be blessed through you. But the Jewish people conveniently for many centuries said, no, we're oppressed, we are uh, persecuted, we don't want to be a blessing, we want to be left alone. And so they, they erected and established barriers and boundaries so that they were not salty and lighty inviting people into the covenant community of Yahweh, they were furthering the divide. And so the Gentile nations, all of them, the, uh, the, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and on and on and on, persistently persecuted them. They were always the others. And yet, the Jewish people persisted and existed. Despite all the exiles, despite all the attacks, they lived. And they took immense pride in that. And so, when Paul shows up in his very first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14 and starts preaching in the synagogues and says, hey, our Messiah has come, but he's done something unexpected. He's offered life everlasting and covenant promise and blessing to the Gentiles. You could hear the proverbial record scratch and they pick up stones to throw at him. Like you, you can't invite them in. They're not us. Messiah is Jewish. Very early on, we see that beginning to happen in Paul's preaching, but it even goes back earlier than that. See, the church has been plagued with this sort of struggle for a very long time. In the book of Acts, which is the birth of the church, the gospel of Luke is the birth of the Christ, Acts is the birth of the church. Very early on, we begin to see conflict emerge. In chapter 4, we see Peter and John beaten by the Jewish authorities. So we see conflict between Jew and Gentile right there. They're preaching Messiah has come, and the Jewish leaders say, no, you can't be saying those things. We're going to get taken over and obliterated by the Romans. So that's a conflict. We go into chapter 5, and we see the first real struggle that they have is this internal corruption and corrosion where Ananias and Sapphira lie to God about their possessions. That's bad. But then things get really serious in chapter 6, and the church is presented with its first real pitfall, potentially. In chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we're told that there were some Hebraic widows and some Hellenistic widows. These are Greek, some perhaps Gentile, perhaps just sort of Grecian, but Jewish widows in the church. 
And because these Hellenistic widows, these women, had a different culture, background, tradition, and language, they were being marginalized and pushed off to the side. And so at some point, some of the Hellenists in the church stood up and said, hey, this isn't right. Hellenist lives matter. Save your emails. They did, and they were being neglected and marginalized. Now, what's really fascinating is how Luke dictates and details what happens next. What happens next is fascinating. The Hebraic Jewish Christians did not say in response, hey, Hebraic lives matter too. They didn't do that. What's also interesting is that the Hellenistic widows who had been neglected didn't form a movement that was actually doctrinally counter to the purpose of the church. So these are both very instructive. Instead, the disciples come together and say, you know what's most important? The teaching, the ministry of the word of God. And those who had an issue were going to ennoble and were going to establish and were going to dignify and raise you up to solve the problem. All of the deacons that then come out of that are all Hellenistic names. Stephen, Nicanor, all these guys are all Gentiles. The disciples go, you know what? You've got a problem, and you're right. We're going to authorize and enable and unleash you to solve it because we cannot allow this racial, ethnic, national tension to be a divide. That is absolutely antithetical to the gospel and to the work that Christ has done. And so the disciples they nip it right in the bud. They go full on Barney Fife on this deal. Now that's a very foundational, formative stage in the beginnings of the church. And apparently it was still going on as far away as Ephesus. And so Paul has to write to them from Rome to say, listen, you have to understand, you used to be called that, but now something has happened. So let me continue on here in verse 11. The circumcision they used to call you the uncircumcision by what is uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time. And then he's going to give them five things that these Gentiles were. This is just like in our passage from last week. Paul's going to paint a hopeless and helpless situation. Like you're out of options entirely. Five things that Gentiles were. Number one separated from Christ, literally without Christ. He's not your Messiah. You don't have a Messiah. You don't know what a Messiah is, so you don't have one and you don't expect one. You have no Christ, no Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside. You, your national hope was that your empire could survive somehow. Your national cultural hope was whatever your nation and culture could provide and produce, which was always limited and always finite. You, you didn't have any hope that there was one day going to be your supreme leader that would rule forever and take you with him to rule in glory with him. There's no idea or notion of that. So this is what their state was. Separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. I can't make a big enough deal about this, but I shall try. There was no promise by any God to them that said, you will forever and ever have land, seed, and blessing. Their best hope was the little bit of life they could eke and scratch out with their nails. That was their biggest and best hope. They had no promise by any deity that was real at all to say, I will always and ever give you land, seed, and blessing. And this has been borne out historically. Every empire ever has fallen. The longest empire in human history, the Byzantine Empire, no longer exists. 
but yet little Israel somehow has managed to persist and exist. How? Because they're awesome. No, because Yahweh promised. But these Gentiles were outside of those covenants of promise, having no hope. There's no other idea that you think, this is how this is going to turn out well for me. My best hope at living forever and ever and ever is that I have more gold stars than red X's. The problem is a trillion gold stars do not wipe out a single red X. And so you have no hope, no confident expectation of something good in the future. This was your situation. And then finally there in verse 12, without God in the world, you're godless. That was your default condition, Gentiles. Remember that. But then the second most important words in this book, in the Bible, in verse 4, it had been, but God. But now Paul pivots here in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is such a rich verse. We could spend forever on it. We're not going to. We're going to walk through this very quickly. But now, it's the central verse of this passage. It's intended to be every bit as forceful as verse four. How have you been brought near? And then Paul says something that is an oxymoron. It's, it's you, you can't say this. He says in verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Messiah can't die by definition. He's a champion. He's a hero. He's divine. He can't die. It's impossible. This is an impossibility. Please hear and receive and know and believe what Paul just said. Those who were far off being brought near was an impossibility. It was so impossible that for it to actually happen, it required that God himself would have to die. But God can't die by definition. God, by definition, can't cease to be God or cease to be unless he chooses to do so to shed his own blood in order to accomplish with peoples what would otherwise be impossible. And Paul says, remember, this was your condition, but he's done it. Therefore, we are one in the Son. Verse 14. For he, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is the person. Not me, not you, not anybody else. Jesus is the person that has done this. It took all of God to solve the human problem. He made people as different as humanly possible, as close as divinely possible. I don't know if we think about that often enough, but we try to say this as often as we can, that this is the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself. Yes, that's verses 1 to 10, and to one another. This is how and why we have this definition of the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement. He has taken people as different as humanly possible and made them as close as divinely possible. And he didn't just give both groups, both different parties or, or sects or traditions or trajectories. He didn't just give them a boost and a nudge and a peach cobbler so that they could temporarily get along until they die one day and go to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's not it at all. Oh, no, no, no. He made the two into one, a new man, a new species, you might even say, that is no longer in Adam. Because Paul says in Corinthians, in Adam, all die. No, these people are in Christ, in which they live together forever and ever and ever, starting the moment they come to faith in him, not just one day when they die. 
Now, Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Now, look, this is certainly a spiritual reference to racial, ethnic, national strife between Jews and Gentiles. But it's also a real-world illustration that Paul takes from the real-world dividing wall that existed in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the, the history of this dividing wall is actually kind of fascinating. Way back in 950 B.C., King Solomon builds the temple, and it's awesome. And of course, Gentiles would not, could not have had access to the Holy of Holies, but there were priests and temple officials that would have prevented their entry. And no Gentile would have wanted to. That was weird. But the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God, literally dwelled there, and Gentiles wouldn't come in. But there was no dividing wall. And then the Babylonians come, and finally in 586 B.C., they finished destroying the temple, pull every stone from stone. There's nothing left. It's destroyed. Finally, the decree comes forth out of Persia and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah return and they rebuild the temple and it looks like it came out of a kit from Home Depot. It's little and it's janky and it's not so swanky. But because they're in hostile territory, in Zerubbabel's temple, they install a dividing wall that was never a part of the prescription that God had given Solomon. But because they're in enemy territory, you might say, trying to reclaim Jerusalem, they install a dividing wall that Gentiles cannot go past this wall. That's how they tried to maintain purity. So that by the time Herod the Great comes along, he spruces up Zerubbabel's temple quite a, bu quite a bunch. And it's even greater and grander than Solomon's temple. And he's really spruced up the dividing wall of hostility. So much so, and he becomes friends with Pilate. Pilate gives Herod the right to capital punishment for any Gentile that goes beyond the dividing wall. Rome never did that. They never gave another conquered nation the right to capital punishment. But he says, for this, if a Gentile crosses that wall, then you can kill them. This is why Paul was in prison. As he writes this letter to the Ephesians, he's in Rome, in prison. Why? Because in Jerusalem, some Jews had seen Paul with a Gentile named Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. And they assumed that Paul took this Ephesian Gentile past the dividing wall of hostility. And so they seize on him to kill him. And the Roman guards have to come and save him. He ends up in Rome writing a letter to the Ephesians. You have to understand and believe that Trophimus made it back and said, this is the craziest thing. The apostle, Paul, they seized him to kill him because they thought that he drugged me past the dividing wall, but he didn't. And now Paul writes, listen, listen, Jesus is our peace. He became the dividing wall of hostility. He became it. And the text literally says, killed it in himself. All the hostility that could or should exist between people historically because of trajectory and tradition and just the gravity of depravity, Christ took that dividing wall of hostility into himself, became it, and killed it in himself, as himself. It's an astonishing thing. Nobody's ever said anything like this before, but Paul does here in Ephesians to them with a very real-world illustration that they themselves would understand. Christ has come, and since he's also the temple, John 2 tells us, since he's also the temple, he's broken down that wall and is himself now the dwelling of God in the world. Well, verses 15 and 16, moving forward. 
How did Jesus do this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. How, how did he break down the wall? How did he do all that? He fulfilled all the commandments in his life. We call that his active obedience. Lived a life of perfect holiness and righteousness in thought, word, and deed. Every nanosecond of his earthly ministry. He fulfilled all those commandments and obliterated their need for existence because they're finished, they're fulfilled. And he became all the consequence for the breakage of those ordinances and he nailed it to his own cross at death. I made myself a little note as I was studying and praying and preparing for this week. I made myself this note. Any notion of distinction of one person over another or one race over another, or one ethnicity over another, or one nationality over another, or one demographic over another, was obliterated at the cross. So that what came off that cross and out of the ground would be the new sphere of life and existence. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did. Now, let me also at the same time pivot and ask us to please understand and embrace. You will never see the Apostle Paul or any other writer of Scripture declare that a Jew stops being a Jew or a Gentile stops being a Gentile. That never happens. That, that, that does not come to pass. They don't stop being Jews when they become Christians any more than Gentiles stop being Gentiles when they become Christians. Now, that's an important thing for us to really grasp and to think on. But what you see consistently is that Paul proclaims that their Jewishness or their Gentileness is no longer their primary point of reference. It's no longer the chief aspect of their identity. They are now primarily, principally in Christ. Secondarily, a Jew or a Gentile or a saint at Ephesus or Philippi or wherever. Now, this has huge implications for us in the 21st century, even in East Texas. Let me say it very directly, just because there's not that many people in this room that can throw stones at me. When a white person becomes a Christian, they don't stop being white, nor do they need to repent for such. When a black person becomes a Christian, they don't stop being black, nor do they need to repent for such. They are who they are in Christ, and it's glorious. And so I hear this all the time, well-meaning Christians trying to say this well-intentioned thing like, I don't see color, I don't see skin. Well, then what's wrong with you? You should, because it's real. And they are image bearers created in God to manifest the variegated glory of the creator. They don't stop being those things. They are those things in Christ, and it's beautiful. It actually amplifies the grandeur of the glory of the gospel. Because there are so many races and ethnicities and national origins and demographics in Christ, it exponentially increases the glory of grace and the gospel because of what God has done. He himself is our peace. It does not mean the absence of stormy conditions. It's the confidence that the stormy conditions will have no bearing on my everlasting well-being whatsoever. We're going to continue to have trying times, but Christ himself is our peace because he became the hostility of division and separateness, all of it, and it died with him as him. And so when we try to drum up and dig up all this racial hostility because of a failure to understand what we're actually doing, we're actually guilty of minimizing and diminishing the enormity of the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. So 
as pastoral as I can say, don't, don't be that guy. Don't try to make a thing where you, you're making people repent for things that are no longer in play. No, no, no. Instead, like Paul did, always make a bigger deal of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. He says in 16 that we are reconciled to God and to one another. Reconciliation has the idea of squaring the accounts. Nothing owed anybody else. Nothing owed anybody else. The accounts have been squared between me and God, between us and God, and between one another. The accounts have been squared. The hostility has been removed. We are one in the Son, is Paul's refrain. We are one in the Son in Christ. Verse 17. And he became, or sorry, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul says that Jesus came and preached to the Gentiles and the Jews. Well, when did he do that? The uh, immediate assumption is that, well, that was in his earthly ministry. No. Paul's doing something very, very subtle in preparation for what's going to come next. Christ preached when the words of the apostles went forth. As Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, as Peter goes out on his missionary journeys, as Thomas goes to India, and Matthew goes to Egypt, and Mark goes to Egypt, and these people go all over the place, that is Jesus preaching. In other words, when the word of God is preached, when the teaching of the prophets and the apostles goes forth, it is as though Jesus himself is personally preaching. Now that's awesome and candidly terrifying. I want to do this as humbly and, and yieldedly and submissively as I can. But when Paul preached, he said it to the Galatians as well, it's like Jesus himself was preaching. Those who were far off, he brought near. Those who were near but wrong and actually just as out, he brought them near as well. Verse 18 he gives this wonderful little triune synopsis. Verse 18, for through him, we both, the Jew and Gentile, every race, ethnicity, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's astonishing. It took the entirety of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what was unexpected was that this massive, massive flow of Gentile peoples, think of the Mississippi River, all the peoples of the world, of the globe, billions of people. The Mississippi River merged with Mud Creek out there, this little bitty trickle of tributary that is Israel and the promise of Messiah. And when the Mississippi River merged with Mud Creek, what came out on the other side was Mud Creek. Like that can't make sense. The mighty Mississippi does not flow into and become Mud Creek. But it did, and that's the glory and the scandal, the unexpectedness. Mud Creek didn't just become a part of the Mississippi River. No, astonishingly, all the peoples of the world, billions of them, are now invited into the Messiah of little Israel, the God Yahweh of little nobody, nothing Israel. All of the world's invited to become identified in him. And it took the Spirit and the Father to make this enormity actually come to pass. So that, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. <laughs> it, it's understandable why the, initially the Jewish people got so upset. You're saying that the Philistines are now friends with God. That's exactly right. The Philistines are friends with Yahweh. That's exactly right. Whoa, 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 you're saying that the Canaanites are now his kids? Precisely. 
All those who are in Christ, you got it exactly right. You're saying that the Babylonians are now his boys and girls? Yup. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying that the Assyrians are now citizens? Precisely. It's an astonishing scandal of grace. You're saying that the Egyptians and enemies are now his emissaries? Exactly. This is what God does. You were out, you were far, you were separate, but now you have been brought near. Verse 20. This new household of God, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, what we read there in Psalm 118 this morning. It is in the process as yet of being built, this house of God. The temple in the ancient Near East in Israel was the largest structure most Jewish people would have ever seen. It was the demonstration and the showplace of the glory of God. And Paul says, actually, it's no longer about that building. Jesus said it was going to be torn down. And ultimately it was in AD 70. No, it's not about a physical structure where the Shekinah glory of God lived. You know where the demonstration of the showplace of the glory of God is today? It's not stone, it's people. It's people. And here's what's crazy. Those people, oh my goodness, we never saw this coming. They're cut from every quarry on the earth. They don't just come from that corner over there, from that quarry. No, they're cut from there. They're cut from there. And so when you put them together, it's this wonderful kaleidoscopic mosaic of colors and trajectories and traditions. It's beautiful. So we must never be about saying, yeah, but I, I, I want this wall to just be that particular quarry, that particular stone. That's above our pay grade, do you see? Jesus himself, he says, is the cornerstone. This temple, this new showplace of his glory is being built on the apostles and the prophets. What does that mean? It means as God gave utterance in the Old Testament through prophets and in the New Testament through apostles, that is what builds the church, the word of God, the very living and active word of God. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. This is the plumb bob. This is where you would set this thing and it had to be one thousand percent accurate because everything else was going to key off of it. And Paul says it's Jesus. He's the living word who indwells us by his spirit so that when we come into proximity with the written word, we're changed. We are grown into this house, this dwelling word, the literal Shekinah glory of God in this age actually dwells. So we are all one in the son. And then just to wrap up this section, here in verses 21 and 22, it says, we are being joined together, grown into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, this wonderful triune conclusion, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It takes all of the Godhead to bring all people who are far and near to be one in Christ so that we will be one in the Son. A preview of the coming attraction that is the kingdom of God literally manifest on earth. So what do we take away from all this? How do we pack all this up and take it with us as we leave or as we make a run to our refrigerator when this is over? Three quick implications. Number one goes like this. Gracism is the only cure for racism. Kind of proud of that one? Pat on the back. <laughs> Gracism is the only cure for racism. We might say it this way then. We are one only in the sun. Not just because we all buy electric cars from GM. Not because we go to some central location in Kansas, Bruce Springsteen. No, we are one 
only in the Son. He is the only one that can make that happen, and he has made it possible. He has done it. You and I and we as a society and as a community, we cannot try to tackle and resolve the problem of racism merely in our own strength. That always results in either utter futility and resentment or in catastrophic destruction of relationships. It breeds contempt and arrogance and disdain for anyone who does not care about a particular issue as much as you or I do. I care about this. This is the one string on my guitar, and I'm going to pluck it, pluck it, pluck it, pluck it, pluck it. And if you don't care about it as much as I do, well, then I'd look down on you, and I'd disdain you, and I hate you, thereby furthering the problem. Now, we can't do this in our own strength. It breeds resentment for those who are trying to accomplish anything else for any other reason. Instead, because of the substitutionary work of Christ and what he's accomplished fully already, we have the opportunity to actually choose to see one another as in Christ. There's a lot of people out there who aren't like you. Praise God. I don't know if you do that or not, but we should. People that look and act and think and vote differently than we do are actually just as far from Christ as we were in our flesh and strength and merit. But now, but now, those people that we are culturally or traditionally conditioned to disdain, I don't know if you've had this experience. I remember not too long ago when I was actually able to walk in a store or a mall and I saw some dude who just looked totally different than me obviously espoused a whole different value set than me. And I looked at him and it was the way David is described when Goliath sees David and he disdained the youth. Yeah, I have that default human proclivity to disdain people that espouse a different value set than I do. And I was convicted and I am convicted. Instead, we have the opportunity to not automatically and instinctively view them with disdain, but instead see them as either in Christ or potentially in Christ. Now that's a whole different way of living in your world and walking around in your world. Christians who are saved by grace and who are in Christ have no place for comparison or arrogance against anybody else in any manifestation whatsoever. Instead, we look at somebody and say, that stone was cut from that quarry and it's a beautiful addition to the temple of God. And I thank God for it. Or that is a stone that could and should be cut from a quarry. God, would you do for him what you have done for me? Because that's how God looks at us. And we have the opportunity to look at one another that way, that we would be a preview of the coming attraction because we're one in the sun. Second point, overruled. That's my point. Overruled. Most, if not all of us, understand that Christ has reconciled believers to himself and to one another. We get that. That's the gospel refrain. We say it as often as we can around here. But just as many of us, that means all of us, also still retain and protect little pockets of authority in our lives in which we refuse to be overruled. Where King Jesus, oh, he's sovereign and all, but there's certain pockets of all of our lives where we don't allow Jesus to overrule us. We white and we say, no, no, you don't get to overrule me. No, you don't have, we have this little pocket of our conscience, this little corner of our being. We say, no, you don't get to overrule me there. All of us, all of us has some thinking that needs to be rethunk. All of us. 
King Jesus, I think, wants to overrule us. He has done all that he can and all that need be done. And all of us, each of us, has something that needs to be overruled. Now, I suspect already some of you may actually already be upset by something that I said this morning, perhaps, or earlier. I don't know. It's possible, likely even, that I misspoke. And if that's the case, then I apologize and I ask your forgiveness. I ask you to pray for me. This was going to be hard. If you're mad, I mean, you didn't pray for me, you get to shut your pie hole. If you prayed for me and you're still mad, then we can have coffee. It's also possible that if you're upset about something, that Jesus is trying to overrule your heart and your soul and your mind and your history and your trajectory and whatever tradition brought you to that position to further build his body for his glory. Maybe you're being overruled. What would it take for you to be overruled? I was presented with that question in my own life just this week. It's an important one. Third, it goes like this. Peace is a person, not a process or a program. Of course, it's all about Jesus. Peace is a person, not a process or a program. In other words, the Constitution, the preamble to the Constitution of a Christian should actually read as follows. We the people of the kingdom of God, because one person formed a more perfect union already. We're not trying to establish it. It's done. He has ordained and established this constitution of the kingdom of God already. It's about that, it's about that which has been done for us, outside of us, entirely already. No amount of government funding or nonprofit planning is going to ultimately address the hostilities in our world unless those of us who are in Christ begin to actually live boldly in light of the peace that actually exists and allow ourselves to be overruled and to share that we've been overruled by our Jesus. Again, every face that you see is either somebody that is, that is in Christ or that is worth praying that they will be by God's grace. See, we are one in the Son. The church is to be the preview of coming attractions, the kingdom of God literally manifest on earth. So much energy, so much effort has been spent trying to solve the problem that only Christ could solve and that he already has. All of us, every single one of us, have aspects of our previous life and tradition and trajectory that we still have to hurl at the foot of the cross. But that's okay. There's grace for that. And there's time. We are invited to do precisely that. As Jesus hung there dying on the cross, I want you to think about that, what he looked at, what he saw, why he did what he did. He did so, the book of Hebrews tells us, in view to a joy that would make his joy complete. All the peoples of the world being reconciled to God, no longer in Adam and death, but in him, in Christ, and reconciled to one another. We are one in the Son. So, may we live in this world like that's true. May we look at this world like that's true. And may we love in this world like that's true. May we really and truly be one in the Son. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are and what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and importantly in this passage, to one another, that the irreconcilable have been reconciled. Now, Father, I pray that wherever this truth needs to be penetrating in each of us, that it, it will do precisely that. Perhaps it's in a marriage. 
Perhaps it's in a sibling relationship, a friend relationship, a parent-child relationship, a coworker, neighbor, friend relationship, whatever it might be, God, that you would ever increasingly build this dwelling of yourself. So, Father, I pray that all those gathered in the real and online will have heard a better sermon than the one preached, that you will accomplish your purpose perfectly and provide peace to all of these, your people. Whatever I have strayed outside the purpose and plan of, of your passage, I pray, God, that you would forgive and remove that. But, God, that your people in this context, in this campus, this congregation, would be the preview of the coming kingdom. So, Father, we pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.